Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome to the podcast, Paul McEnroe, illustrious inventor. Thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. So you developed the barcode, which is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. We use it all the time. When you developed that, when you invent the barcode, what is the problem that you were trying to solve? What is the question that's put before you and the team? Twofold. One, IBM wanted me to get them in a new business that would uh, open up the doors to uh, more growth for the company, something they weren't already in, and supermarket retail was one of those things. And two, the supermarket industry, particularly in retail, general retail like Macy's and those kinds of companies, uh, in addition, were saying they needed item identification. They needed to have some way to identify the item that's being sold because at the at that time, they were doing inventory by counting what was left on the shelves. Uh, when they sold you something, the check slip didn't say what it was. It just said 59 cents or 39 cents and so on. Those kind of numbers then, not now. They didn't have any automatic uh, control of their inventory. The check stand uh, lines were long and inefficient. And uh, there were a lot of other inefficiencies in sales. So they were looking for all of these things. And it happened at the same time that IBM wanted to grow their business and I was in IBM. And so I started to work I, I made them a proposal like you would make to a venture capital firm to get started uh, on a new business. And I, I looked at banking, this, that, and the other thing, and I picked point of sale. I had a lot of history with National Cash Register in Dayton, Ohio, where I grew up. And so I knew a lot about that. And I have worked on scanning things like images and barcodes and other kind of codes in the nine years I had been at IBM. So I was familiar with item identification. So I pulled together a team and we made a proposal. And in the meantime, the supermarket industry had come out with a formal request for proposals. And we made one of those proposals and our code was selected as the international standard. So how do you start that? You say, okay, right now, all of these products are just individually itemized. Cashiers have to input everything and specifically. What is step one when you want to code everything? I mean, there are millions of products, uh, certainly thousands and thousands of products in a grocery store. How do you start? Where well, do you begin the, that process? Yeah, it's a real good question. The real advantage for us was that the Supermarket Institute realized all these problems. So they have a bunch of magazines that they've been writing about in the last 10 years saying how inefficient this operation is and so on. And so they uh, began to identify what they wanted to do. And IBM had the computers in the back rooms of the warehouses and the headquarters. And so we knew what they didn't know. And we knew that if we could uh uh, if we could document numbers for items, that that would work. And so the Supermarket Institute consists of not only the supermarket companies that we're familiar with shopping at, but also the manufacturers like Nabisco and, and, and Post and all, all those people. And so they all got together and said, we need to pick out some code that we can put on every item that will have enough digits of identification that we can uniquely call that out. One number for everybody in the United States and 
and, and in fact, the world, although we put a different country code on. The Supermarket Institute hired McKinsey and Company, a very good consulting firm, to help them with specifying what they needed. And at IBM, we kind of knew what they needed. That was our business. You know, we were documenting and, and holding uh, inventory control and and uh, all the computer things you do in the back room to uh, manage that. So it was a combination of the Supermarket Institute recognizing it, of their consultant being very good and specifying it well, and of uh, uh, the companies. There were 14 of us companies that's, that made proposals. And we were very fortunate to have ours selected. I, of course, I'm biased, but I'm pretty sure that ours was the best code and it, it worked from the start. And if it didn't work from the start before those companies put marking on back at the factory, it would have never gotten going. And and it, it, the, the original printing was pretty poor because it was cheap printers that we had to make to put in the store that had to print the code. Now they're printed quite nicely, but uh, in those days, uh, it was very difficult. So you had to have a very good code. And we did have that. We had an immensely good code. And that made all the difference. We all see, engage with barcodes all the time. So much so that, at least for me, I often don't think about all of the specific information that's contained in it. Like what, so what's in a barcode? The standard barcode was the easiest one to talk about of the day. And it's, there's, it still exists today. They've been, they've added onto it a little bit in here and there, but the standard one still exists. The five digits on the left, if you look at one, there's five numbers at the bottom of the barcode on the left and five on the right. The five on the left identify the manufacturer. Okay. So Nabisco or Post or Del Monte or a company like that. So they would be assigned a number and that number would go on all their all, all their products. Then on the right hand side, let's say it's Del Monte and let's say it's giant olives, 16 ounces. OK, so giant olives, 16 ounces for Del Monte would get a number. Okay, a can. Okay, and and so that would be the number that would identify that can. So if you read both numbers, you you see okay, it's a Del Monte product B A and B. It is uh, those kind of olives, and that is unique. And so then the computer can go to work on that. It can see how many do we have in inventory? Oh, we only have five left after this one sells. Order more automatically. And it will send the price and a description and a sale factor and anything else that the company wants to be printed out on the check slip right next to the price. And the price, of course, will go into the computer. That's what it is. So the five digits to the left identify the company that manufactured it and the five digits to the right what their particular product is. And that works for everything in the United States. And then there's another country code embedded in the digits off to the left if you're in the United Kingdom or France or China or wherever. When you put this proposal together, and initially it's just intended for grocery stores, do people think you are crazy? Like, it's such a big, massive project. You've got to code all of these different items. Uh, were there some skeptics? Did you encounter heavy skeptics at the, at, at the outset? Oh, you can't believe. I mean, 18 states passed laws against it. Uh, the first store didn't open, and I was afraid, you know, okay, our equipment, you got to test it 16 ways from Sunday, which we did. And my chief engineer calls me back from the store on a grand opening day in 1974 and said, Paul, the store couldn't open. What? What could we have failed on? 
Okay, picket lines. The, 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 the labor unions picketed the store because they were afraid the supermarket checkout clerks were going to get fired. And uh, as I said, 18 states passed laws saying that you couldn't take the price off the merchandise. See, that was the most controversial thing that we were doing. We were going to take the price off the merchandise. So before that can of uh, colossal olives of Del Monte would have had a stamped number on it. And, and by the way, the number is going up all the time, like it always does. And so if you were a smart shopper, you would fish to the back of the of, of the cabinet or, or of the shelf and find an old can that had a lower price on it and buy that one. And the, the store would lose money because they had to sell you the one that had the old price on it. But of course, we took the prices off and then they can change the price uh, and, uh, you know, they just have to change the marking on the uh on, on the shelf, not on the individual item. There were all kinds of things. I mean, the IBM lawyers said we couldn't do it because, uh, you know, we weren't 100% sure of laser light. Some senator wanted to introduce a law into Congress that we couldn't use lasers, which is how you read the light. I mean, how you get the light to read the label, uh, the barcode, because the government was using them to shoot down enemy airplanes. And how could you put something like that in a store? And I pointed out that the one in the store was something like one millionth of the amount of power of the one that shoots the airplane out of the sky. But this guy didn't understand that. And uh, so, yeah, there were lots and lots of problems. I even had to buy monkeys from Africa and have them tested for a year to prove that it didn't affect their, the accumulated uh a light from the laser, even though the laser, of course, the light is turned off except when it's actually scanning an item. But even so, I had to prove that if somebody stared at it for a year, it couldn't hurt their eye, which we did. Put that in context. Um, uh, Paul, what year was this? I started the project in 1969 and the supermarket formed their committee in 1970. They picked our code and set it up as the international standard in 73. So 50 years ago this year is when it was selected. And the whole notion of, and I point out the year because, you know, now we're used to talking about laser technologies and uh, different things. But at the time, I mean, my goodness, uh, Star Trek had barely come out. So people were, people were really worried that you were perhaps introducing something dangerous into the grocery store. Yeah. Think about this. The, the PC hadn't been invented yet. You know, it'd be another decade. What we did, basically, we put a PC on the top of the check stand. That, that's really what it is. The check stand, the checkout thing that the scanner, which has a laser in it, plugs into is basically a PC. Uh, it's slightly different, but from an engineering point of view, it has all the elements of a PC, almost all of them. You mentioned 18 states passed laws. Was it all based on concerns around labor unions or, uh, or displacing employees? No, it was, uh, I think that was a big factor, but the single biggest factor was no price on the item. And uh, would the consumers be upset because they're not going to have a price on every item? The way you, one of the reasons you save money is you don't have to go around putting a price on every can when you put it out on the supermarket. I tell you, the, the, the best uh, feeling for that uh, that I got was I went to our, one of our test stores, which in 1974, early 74, mid 74, in um, Montreal, Quebec, and it was a Steinway store. I went up to check out our installation. We had a scanning installation. Uh, we were taking prices off the items. This was a test situation. The store at that time was being visited by uh, an executive from the Canadian government. 
And uh, just like the executives from the U.S. government were looking around a little bit, too. But anyway, this was Canada. And uh, I was there in the store with the gentleman from the from the, the uh, Canadian national offices. And he decided to start interviewing customers. And so there was this little old lady walking out of the store with her cane. He went up to her and he said, uh, ma'am, may I ask you a few questions? She said, sure. I was listening, standing right there next to him. He said, are you upset that the prices are off the merchandise and, you know, you can't see the price on the cans or the boxes that you buy? And are you upset about the system for that reason? She says, oh, no, no, you don't understand. This is fantastic. I now can go down the street to the competitor store and I've got my slip and I can pull my slip out and I can see what I paid for Rice Krispies of a certain size. And before I had never had any idea because I just got a slip and it had, you know, 50 numbers on it with no reference to any what it was, you know, 39 cents, 74 cents, $1.50, $1.20, but no reference to what it was that you bought. So how do you know what you pay for anything? And she said, this way I can tell which store has the cheapest prices because I've got my little slip. So I think it's great. And, you know, we never heard another problem from the Canadian government. <laughs> <laughs> so you initially invent this technology for purposes of supermarkets. Barcodes are now everywhere, uh, attached to just about every consumer product. How does this technology go from the supermarket aisle to everywhere? And I should mention, speaking of everywhere, your book, The Barcode, How a Team Created One of the World's Most Ubiquitous Technologies, will be out this month. Congratulations. How do you export this from supermarkets to every other kind of market? That's a very good question, too. We did plan it initially for uh, several marketplaces. So they were the three, the big three retailers at that time were not even around hardly anymore. Sears, Pennies, and Wards. Montgomery Wards, J.C. Pennies, and Sears and Roebuck. <laughs> Remember them? Yeah, I do. <laughs> they, 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 were the big, they were the big ones. And, uh, you know, even the big Safeway, I, I mean, the big companies in the supermarket were Safeway and A&P and, you know, Kroger, of course, was there. But anyway, they were different. For supermarket, which just needed the 10 numbers that I told you about before, the five for the company that makes the product and five for what type of product they make. For retail, then the whole retail market was separate from Sears, Pennies, and Wards. It was Macy's and Federated Department Stores and iMagnet and, you know, all those people. For them, they wanted 40 alphanumeric characters, which we couldn't put on black and white bars and make them small enough. So we used the same encoding the same engineering coding, which is a great code, very hard to uh, misread. And we put it magnetically on a little stripe that you may remember they put on fashion merchandise and it told everything. I mean, it had the name of the designer, a long Italian name, whatever, and uh, the color and, you know, not just red, white and blue, but some fangdangled color, you know, and so on. So we had a lot of information on there. But over the years, several things happened. At the time, we designed the system so it would handle the cash and carry markets in Europe, which had 40 check stands in the front store with scanners, um, sort of like a monstrous Costco. But now Costco, Kmart, all those people, that's how they were operating. And they got 
they got supermarket stuff, but they've also got general merchandise. So the general merchandise stuff stopped using our magnetic codes and living with less digits to define everything. They decided, okay, we don't need that Italian guy's name on there necessarily. Some of the top stores still use the magnetic code, but most of them didn't. And then they found out, you know, like at Amazon, hey, you know, we can use the code and put an automatic scanner here very easily. And it'll say, this is what product it is. And, and, and you know, uh, Tanya has bought one and uh, she lives in New York. So we're going to send that to her. And so then they, they put on their you know, uh, a code that got the routing on it and then it sends it down a certain line and, you know, everything is automated. In, in fact, when they make your car, everything is automated. They got barcodes on everything. You know, I mean, <laughs> every little part in the car has got a barcode on it that tells it where to go and when to be there and so on and so forth. And people assemble them. And so they took advantage of the fact that we had a code that is very, very efficient. It's uh, self-correcting. You know, if, if there's, Two of the bars are blacked out and you can't read them at all. You take a pen and you cover it with black ink. It will read the other nine and then correct the tenth one and figure out what it should have been and change it and make it that. I put an appendix in the book for the technical people that really want to study it. And it is a document that I wrote back in 1971 that describes the advantages of the code per se. So the code was... You know, like if they were you're selling coffee today, you might call it bulletproof. The code was very bulletproof. And uh, so they were able to adapt it for everything from Amazon to railroad cars to automobiles to retail to supermarket and anything else you might want. Of course, it doesn't have enough digits. So then they expanded it, which I think is a great thing, uh, to be a code you can read in both directions. So it's not just in one line, but a line across and a line up and down. So you can measure areas and that gives you the QR code that you can scan with your phone and so on. And you get a lot more information. It's the same type of thing, but we didn't have that at the time. When you developed the barcode, you're working for IBM. So it's an IBM product. Does that mean that all of the barcodes that showed up anywhere, any place, all have their genesis back to this original IBM development? That's correct, except that I should point out that the Supermarket Institute, which first approved the code, were wise enough to say, we don't want to make a billionaire out of somebody. We don't want, if they got just a penny, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a penny, and there's 10 billion every day, uh, scanned and printed, you can imagine how much money the people would have or the company. And so they said, anybody that wants to submit a code has to put it in the public domain. So nobody will get Mm -hmm. any royalties on it. And so we and the other 14 companies that proposed codes agreed to that. So IBM made money by selling hardware and software to supermarkets, but nobody makes any money on the code itself. The code is for free. It's in the public ownership. That's a very important point, Paul. And it kind of brings me to my next subject because I want to make some money. So what can you invent that we can use now? (laughs) I'm not adverse. I'm not adverse to profit. So if you have any good ideas, I am here and I'll do, I'll be your assistant. I'll be your apprentice, whatever you say, sir. I'm I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Yeah. I I wish I had an answer to that one. You just work on it. I believe you just, just work on it. Put that in your uh, coffee pot and let it percolate. Good. 
you That's the best question I've ever been asked, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so interesting because you're really working in this industry at the beginning of the computer age, you know, before computers are what they are now, before they are ubiquitous, before little kids, frankly, uh, know how to code. Can I tell you something very interesting? This was the first integrated circuit in the history of IBM to come into a product I put in in this uh, in the point of sale terminal. And wow. we had to have our engineers go learn how to make integrated circuits, you know, where you put a whole bunch of circuits in one little transistor or one little semiconductor. And uh, guess what our density was? We had up to, up to 300 circuits on a chip. Can you believe As that? As compared Three, to now yeah. is, is what? what? What's that? Uh, Put that in context million. for, for uh, lay people who aren't computer specialists. Is that <laughs> you something? Know? You went from 300 to 300 million. Yeah, something wow. like that, right. Wow. When you look at the kind of business climate today, and you know, maybe this is a little bit of an unfair question because you were working with IBM. You weren't uh, on your own trying to do this. But if you were just to sort of think about what the climate is today for developing new ideas, for entrepreneurship. How easy is it, or rather, how would you compare it to 1969 when you were working on this project? I mean, it seems now that technology is so much more accessible. It's easy for people to learn it. Where do you think we are in terms of you know, creating space and you know, giving support to entrepreneurs and, and new developments like this? Yeah, well, it, it certainly has changed. I think the internet maybe has changed the most of it all. Now, whatever question you have, you can ask Google and you get some kind of an answer. Or if you don't get the answer, you'll find out where to go and get it. In those days, you know, I mean, you had to go to a library at a major university or you could do your research on a computer, but you could only get the computer in the middle of the night uh, and so on and so forth. The rewards are a little different too. We did have venture capital at the time, and they were kind of the same way, but uh, it wasn't so easy to figure out what you you could do and where you might go with it as it is today. There's so many people focusing on what do I do to innovate? Like how many podcasts are there about innovation and invention? The one thing that stays with it, and that's why I put, as you read a minute ago, teamwork as a key factor, even on the title page of the book, because that's what it was. Our system wasn't, it wasn't so much, I mean, everybody wants to think of it as, okay, you you came up with these bars and so on and so forth. And that was a very big part of it without which nothing would have happened. But everything around the bars, the laser scanner, the optics in the scanner, how do you read it while it's being twisted back and forth and so on and so forth. I had an IBM president come down when we told him we were going to read these bars as somebody pulled them 100 inches a second across the check stand while they might be spinning. And uh, it's in the middle of a picture of Captain Marvel, whom you probably don't even remember, uh, on, on, on the package. And we're going to go look up the price and change the inventory and everything for 40 people simultaneously, faster than any of them can realize we're doing anything. And this guy was a bright engineer and he was the president of our company, of our our division. And he said, this is the most preposterous idea I've ever heard. And he said, "Uh, I know that if I had you give me a review on this every week, I would kill the project sooner or later. And uh, he said, I know you guys have a good reputation, so I'm going to leave you your money. I had asked for a certain amount of money, not very much, 
100,000 the first, uh, 300,000 the first year, a million the second year, and three million the third year, which is peanuts, right? And he says, I'll leave you the money, but I'm coming back in a year. And if, if you haven't got this damn thing working, you're desk is going to be in the parking lot immediately. Uh, and one year later, he showed up on the very day to the year. We took him in the lab. He threw a pack of cigarettes with the markers on it, and it read. And then he went and he got down on his hands and knees and opened up the box underneath to see if we were cheating, if we had some little engineer hiding underneath there pushing <laughs> buttons. And we a didn't. Little person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't believe it. So, you know, he said, great. But it was putting all these other things around it. We had to change magnetics. There's a thing you may have heard of called the token ring communication system, which is an Ethernet-like thing. We actually invented a thing like that to transmit the signal from the check stand to the back room. The work of engineering and building a system around this little barcode was as big as the barcode itself. And it took us, I, I worked directly on the project from 1969 to 1977. In 77, we still hadn't achieved real high volume, but it, it picked up very shortly after that. And then we got the high volume and then every supermarket got it and, and, and other stores as well. Wow, it's just fascinating. You created not just a technology, but then a whole infrastructure to support that technology. Paul McEnroe, don't forget our side project because I am looking to be at the forefront of something big and grand. Paul McEnroe, his upcoming book, The Barcode, How a Team Created One of the World's Most Ubiquitous Technologies. It'll be out September 19th. Paul McEnroe, thank you so much for being here. This was great fun. My pleasure. I had fun too. 